This is CliffCentral.com. Please note that the views expressed and the advice provided in this show are for general advice and entertainment purposes only. Nothing stated should be treated as a substitute for your own independent legal advice based on your own specific facts and objectives. Therefore, the presenter and CliffCentral.com accept no liability of any nature whatsoever, either expressed or implied. Law, like you've never heard it before. The Laws of Life with Gary Hertzberg on CliffCentral.com. I'm Gary Hertzberg and this is The Laws of Life on CliffCentral.com. On today's show, we discuss the prosecution of Jacob Zuma. It arises from the 1990s arms deal that has come back to bite the ex-president. He's now been charged with multiple crimes dating back to that time. If you're a bit unsure of what Mr. Zuma is up against, here's Sean Abrams of the, well, he's the National Director of Public, Public Prosecutions, and he outlines what Mr. Zuma is facing. Mr. Zuma, if you would recall well, was indicted on 28 December 2007 on the following charges. One count of racketeering, two counts of corruption, one count of money laundering and 12 counts of fraud. On 7 April 2009, the National Prosecuting Authority withdrew the charges against Mr. Zuma in the Durban High Court. After consideration of the matter, I am of the view that there are reasonable prospects of a successful prosecution of Mr. Zuma on the charges listed in the indictment served on Mr. Zuma prior to the termination of the matter by Amshir SC. As a result, Mr. Zuma's representations are unsuccessful. The Director of Public Prosecutions, KwaZulu-Natal, will facilitate the necessary processes for Mr. Zuma and his co-accused to appear in court. Now, these charges against him are really, really serious and are certainly no laughing matter. <laughs> yeah, joining us today to discuss the case of the state versus Jacob Zuma is one of my old favorites, Johannesburg attorney Martin Hood, specialist in criminal law and procedure. Welcome to you, Martin. No laughing matter, this one. Hi, Gary. Hello, everybody. Yeah, this uh, this terrible arms deal has really come back to haunt the ex-president and with an 89-page indictment, I think it is, he's got a lot to answer to. Yeah, um, I think first of all, uh, t- to add to what uh, Sean Abraham said, and uh, I must say it sounded somewhat ironic coming from Mr. Abrams's mouth that he's decided to recharge uh, Mr. Zuma. Mm. Um, there are two further charges that have uh, been added since 2009, and I think that um, they're quite important because it perhaps shows that there is a, a new broom sweeping through the National Prosecuting Authority, and that is that um, he's been charged, in addition to those charges that were withdrawn in 2009, 
making false statements in his income tax returns and failing to show gross income or material facts in his income tax returns. And I think those are very important charges because we must remember the story of Al Capone, yes. who eventually was put into Alcatraz on tax evasion charges and not for all the, the murder and other activities that he was involved in. So, yeah, they uh, could never nail him on anything, and exactly. they eventually they got him on uh, uh, income tax evasion. So he got all, 11 years. So all yeah. strength to SARS in this case. Absolutely. Mark, let's just give out our details, our Facebook page, The Laws of Life with Gary Hertzberg, our Twitter handle at Hertzlaw, and our partner today, Leal Talk South Africa, with 176,000 members. Excellent. Mark, let's go, let's talk about um, what's, uh, take, take us through the chart sheet in a little more detail, if you don't mind. So the chart sheet in itself is quite short. In, 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 in essence, there's three charges, racketeering, fraud, and corruption. Now, we have um, an interesting situation in this particular indictment, and I don't want to become too technical because, first of all, I will get myself confused because the legislation is quite complicated. But um, the, there are two pieces of legislation, and the activities that uh, Mr. Zuma is alleged to have committed fall between both pieces of legislation. The first one is a 1998 piece of legislation, which is the Prevention of Organized Crime Act, and then the second one is, in essence, a 2004 piece of legislation, for want of a better word, called the Corruption Act. What Mr. Zuma has been charged with, first of all, is involvement in a pattern of racketeering activity. Now, racketeering in itself is not an offense. It is a pattern of activity that um, contravenes one of the contents of Schedule 1 of the Criminal Procedure Act. So it's fraud in this case, obviously. Mm. So he's charged with a pattern of fraud. Those make up the um, main part of the uh, charges. They're the most, well, they're all very serious, but they're the ones that carry the highest penalties. Then he's charged in the alternative with fraud. So, in other words, simple fraud uh, in terms of the common law. Um, what's interesting, uh, and I had to go and look at this, is they make reference to the Criminal Procedure Act in the fraud charges, Section 156, and I went and had a look at it, and they've decided in terms of the Criminal Procedure Act, to only proceed against Mr. Zuma in terms of the fraud, because fraud normally has two parties, at least two parties to it. Mm. And in this instance, instead of charging the, the – there are three parties in the indictment. There is uh, Jacob Zuma, Tint Holdings, which has changed its name on a number of occasions, Tint PTY Limited, which is another subsidiary of Tint Holdings. Instead of charging all three of them with fraud, they've specifically – only decided to proceed against Jacob Zuma. And that's very interesting because I think that shows a particular focus on trying to get finality in this matter because Jacob Zuma is a natural person. He can go to jail. A company cannot go to jail. Mm -hmm. So they focus their um, charge sheet and their investigation specifically on Jacob Zuma. So although there are three accused, it's clear that the other two are what I would call token accused. They have representatives in court, the worst that can happen to them is that they be given a fine of some sort. They can't physically be sent to jail. Mm. And if you look at the indictment, it's clear that the parties that were involved in the two companies at the time of the alleged activities, those directors are no longer involved in the company, so they're gone. They're not touchable by the South African legal, by the South African legal system. They would have to be extradited in their capacity as directors at the time that the offences took place. And obviously the NPA has chosen not to bring any ex, um, any 
proceedings to expedite them because it's not part and parcel of this criminal case. Let's go back to some of the facts leading up to this. We, we, we're going back now 20-odd years, even more. It's, it's an arms deal. Tell us about what South Africa bought uh, very briefly. Have they used it? How much was spent? And <laughs> well, yeah, what, was, you know, what were they looking for from President or from Jacob Zuma at the time? Well, the, arms, the international arms trade doesn't have a particularly good reputation. Mm. Um, they tend to follow the money and they tend to have uh, lots of money at stake and it's regarded as one of the most corrupt industries in the world. Uh, even before 1994, uh, French, British, American arms manufacturers had already anticipated that there would be a need to revamp what was the South African Defense Force, and overtures were made to the ANC while they were still in exile about the need to rearm and re-equip the South African Defense Force, which had been the subject of sanctions for many, many years. Mm. The the government conducted a defense review shortly after coming to power in 1994, and by 1996 had identified that it needed to re-equip its Navy, Air Force, and to a lesser extent, the land forces. In essence, the two major parts of the purchases were the Griffin and Hawk fighters, on the one hand for the Air Force, mm. and on the other hand were a number of frigates and smaller vessels for the the Navy. Mm. And much of this actually... Much of these allegations uh, arise out of the Navy arms deal for the supply and provision maintenance of frigates. Ironically, and I think there's been a lot in the press over the years about planes not having pilots and not being able to fly a minimum number of hours because of costs, a similar situation exists in, in respect of the frigates. Two of the frigates, I believe, are not seaworthy, and one of them in particular is not seaworthy because what you do when you've got a, a ship berthed in harbour is you've got to have a supply of power to maintain lights and motors and ventilation and so forth. And somebody plugged the ship into the wrong power source <laughs> and blew a great deal of very, very, very expensive electronics. Mm. And the Navy hasn't had the funds to re-equip that, that frigate um, since that event that happened several years ago. I have seen the other frigate doing some sea trials recently, mm. so it's quite possible that that other frigate is now seaworthy, but one most definitely had its electrics blown, to put it simply, mm -hmm. as a result of a, a maintenance mistake. How did Shabir Sheikh get involved in all this? Where did he fit in? Shabir was one of those people that had contact with the ANC before 1994. Mm. Um, I think that Shabir needs to be credited with the fact that he was a shrewd businessman and he saw and anticipated the need for the arms deal. So he started getting involved with a company called Nkobi Holdings. He started making overtures with particularly the, the French manufacturers, Talas, um, before 1994 through swapping some shares and um, peddling the fact that um, he would be able to have contact with the ANC when they came into government because he'd been involved I believe, and I don't think this has ever been confirmed, he was a sort of treasurer in KwaZulu-Natal where he channeled funds for the support of the ANC prior to 1994. So he did have some political contacts mm -hmm. before um, the first uh, democratic parliament of 1994, and he saw that he could use that. He could uh, profit from a business point of view by by introducing uh, a willing buyer and a willing seller, so to speak. Mm. How much money 
did Sheikh and Inkobi Holdings pay to Zuma? Is it alleged by the state? It's about uh, about four million and eighty thousand rand over a number of payments, seven hundred and eighty odd payments. Bearing in mind, of course, uh, as you rightfully pointed out, that four million rand in nineteen ninety five terms mm. is certainly a substantial amount of money now. Mm. And then over and on top of that was the undertaking allegedly by uh, Talis to pay. 500,000 rand per year from when they got the defense contracts until such time as it was in a position to pay dividends. I'm not quite sure what the significance of the dividends is, Mm. but it would have been a number of years. So there was a commitment, I know, from the indictment to pay Jacob Zuma at least an additional million rand over and on top of the 4 million rand. So he got, over a period of 10 years, it is alleged, 4 million rand from Sheikh, who got the money from the arms su- suppliers? Indirectly, yes. What he yeah. did was he actually borrowed money yeah. um, through Nkobi Holdings um, and made any number of payments um, to Jacob Zuma from buying him clothing to more substantial payments. And I think what's also interesting, and uh, I think we've seen this from our ex-president, we mustn't forget that he also was given an amount of one million rand by then-President Nelson Mandela as well. Mm. So by 1995, um, our ex-president had developed some very expensive tastes, and he had an extensive uh, network of family and wives and children to support, and that mm. was found to be a weakness that was exploited by Shabir Sheikh. I think some of the money went to improving Kandler as well. That's, a, that's absolutely correct. Mm. Um, he had... A small traditional home. He contracted someone to the tune of just over a million rand to do some improvements. And one of the allegations in the indictment that was that money was paid directly by Nkobi to this contractor for Jacob Zuma's benefit. Mm. And that goes to the um, money laundering and racketeering charges because that way money was paid. To, it, it was disguised. Its origin was disguised. Mm. And that constitutes money laundering. The state is alleging that uh, Jacob Zuma abused his position as MEC and Deputy President of the ANC to do these favors for, for Sheikh and, and in Kobe Holdings. Well, I'm not sure if these allegations were in the original indictment, but it's very interesting. And again, I would suggest that it shows a possible new broom sweeping through government because the the indictment, as you've indicated, is 80 pages, and it really goes into a great deal of detail about how he contravened the constitution, so mm. that's our national constitution, how he contravened the ministerial handbook whilst he was a national minister, and how he contravened the provincial minister's handbook while he was an MEC. Yes. And it, it goes on and spells out in detail how he received payments and used his influence, not only for the arms deal, but in other respects as well to buy political favors and to buy and sell political capital. If Assuming that he's convicted of fraud or racketeering or whatever it may be, what kind of penalties could he face? Gary, I'm going to answer that in a moment, mm. but I want to touch on an issue that uh, you did raise, and um, that is the size of this case and the timing. Mm. This is a show trial. And by that I mean that it's unlikely that uh, Jacob Zuma is ever going to see the inside of the cell. And the reasons for that are as follows. 
First of all, it's very difficult to conduct a trial when the evidence is 20 years old. Secondly, Sorry, can I interrupt you for a second? Is there no prescription on this? There's no prescription on this type of offense, but mm. we're going to – so there will be statutory records. There's going to be paper documentation. Mm. Um, that, that's not the problem. But they want to call – the NPA wants to call approximately 200 witnesses. Yes. Those witnesses are spread throughout the world, Australia, Malaysia, the UK, Scotland, uh, and other countries. Some of those witnesses are not going to be willing witnesses. Um, there's some attorneys on there who obviously provided legal advice. There's a number of members of Johannesburg and Pretoria's um, Advocates Bar. Mm-hmm. So we have a monumental trial ahead of us where the state intends on calling 200 witnesses based upon an 80-page indictment. There's a lot of allegations, each of which is going to need to have to be proven. The time that it's going to take to conduct this trial, setting aside any other legal challenges for the moment, is going to be three to five years. Mm. That means Jacob Zuma, who turned 76 a few days ago, will finally get his day in court and taking out a possible appeal, of course, because there will be an appeal to the Supreme Court of Appeal and there will be a Constitutional Court appeal. He's going to be in his early 80s before he actually could be convicted. And courts don't like sending old people to jail. Mm. Notwithstanding the seriousness of these charges, Zuma knows, and I have no doubt that his legal team have discussed this extensively, they are going to litigate this until Jacob Zuma dies. They are going to play with state money and state resources have appeals, have reviews, have internal challenges to different mm. parts of the case until Jacob Zuma is too old or he's dead. It's this, as simple as yeah, that. Are we paying for this? Well, yeah. that comes to the next point, and that is that there is apparently an undertaking from the National Prosecuting Authority dating back to the mid-2000s where because he was a civil servant at the time, it was agreed because he was – supposedly acting in an official capacity, and I want to stress supposedly, that the um, state attorney's office would foot his legal bills, and so far it's just under 35 million rand, which I think in itself is understated. Mm. Now, there is no evidence of that agreement. The NPA, the uh, state attorney has said that there is such an agreement, but when they've been asked, has it been documented, they haven't been able to, they haven't been able to produce any documentation. So, the Democratic Alliance has undertaken to challenge that decision, and that may be a game changer mm. because as we sit here, Jacob Zuma has played with taxpayers' money for the last 15 years, and he it's great to litigate when you're not paying the bills because you can do anything that you mm. want, and there's no consequence. Yeah. There's no comeback that doesn't come out of your own personal pocket. Mm. If the DA is successful in challenging that decision of the state attorney to pay Zuma's legal uh, fees, then there could be a complete change in strategy in this case. What about uh, uh, <clears throat> the representations to the uh, Director of Public Prosecutions? What's going on there? Well, again, uh, Zuma made law in the Supreme Court of Appeal when the Supreme Court of Appeal decided in terms of the first set of charges that he had no automatic right to make representations. Mm-hmm. He has made representations. I don't know what the status of the representation representations are, but one thing I can assure you is that if the decision doesn't go in Jacob Zuma's favor, 
we're going to have a review application on our hands, which will wind its way through to the Supreme Court of Appeal and mm. possibly the Constitutional Court as well. This will go on forever if, if the state continues to pay for it. Well, that's, that's exactly my point, where there's no consequence you can afford. At the age of 76, we know that this, this process is 20 years old already. Mm. Jacob Zuma is not going to live till he's 2000 and, until he's 96. It's unlikely. Mm. So he's just going to litigate this to the very bitter end every single step of the way, notwithstanding that he has received severe judicial criticism as it is from two courts saying that his his policy of legal challenges every step of the way is unacceptable. But the courts can't actually turn around and deprive him of the right to review or to appeal because that would be unconstitutional. So he's going to do it. You have a, a list of uh, witnesses. Is Shabir Sheikh on that list? No, interestingly mm. enough, not. And nor is Chippy Sheikh, his brother, mm. who was also quite instrumental in uh, the the implementation of the arms deal because he was head of procurement at the time. I think the reasons for that are, number one, it's unlikely that either Chippy or Shabir are going to get into the witness box and give evidence and possibly incriminate themselves in respect of an offense which they have not been charged for mm. because then they could be charged. Mm. Secondly, as a matter of principle, once you've had your day in court and you've been punished, and I use the word very loosely because Shabir wasn't really punished, you don't want to go back to court and give evidence again. And I think that they would be hostile witnesses. Yeah. They have a lot to to lose by being subject to cross-examination by lawyers. It would uh, I must tell you, it would be a wonderful dog and pony show if um, Shabir got into the witness box because there's Jacob Zuma's lawyers who at one point – Jacob Zuma was in bed with Shabir Sheikh. Now they've got to stab him in the back to save Jacob Zuma. It would be a wonderful show, but that's not going to happen. And Shabir would be quite entitled to refuse to go and give evidence. So how do they prove it then? Is it just a paper trail of money that moved to accounts? I mean, without his evidence about the discussions between them and the arms supplier in, as to the bribe? In, in Shabir's trial, there was a number of witnesses who gave evidence. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if it was KPMG, um, but auditors gave evidence about transactions and where they went to. There are bank records, etc. But there were there were findings of fact made by the original trial court that were confirmed eventually um, on appeal. So the record of those proceedings and the findings of the judges stand as facts. So there would also not really be much need to call Shabir Sheikh mm. to prove what has already been accepted and proven as a fact in the High Court. So, Mart, it's been very interesting. This uh, your, your belief is this, uh, this will never get anywhere, really. It's uh, not going no, it's anywhere. It's not going to happen. No. It's, it's a show and to show that something's been done. I think it's paying lip service and I don't want to be flippant because mm. we need to have this trial. And that's yeah. why I called it a show trial. Jacob Zuma does need to go on trial. Mm. But I think that the consequence is too far down the line to be of any consequence to Jacob Zuma. Absolutely. Good. Very, very interesting. Thank you for this contribution. To our live listeners, uh, please don't go away. We're going to talk about firearm legislation, and there's a new amnesty out for people running around with unlicensed, unlicensed firearms. You don't want to miss that one. We'll be right back. This is CliffCentral.com.